Welcome to the Wisdom and Wellness Parsha podcast, a weekly Eden Center podcast featuring Rabbanit Shani Tarragon with insights from the Parsha about women's health, relationships, mikveh, and well-being. It is but one of many wonderful educational platforms of the Eden Center, which is transforming the mikveh experience and educating women how to use mikveh as a vehicle to connect to women's health, well-being, and healthy relationships. Check out our website and please consider making a donation to support our work and this podcast, www.theedencenter.com. Enjoy Shani's wisdom on the Parsha. Hello and welcome to Eden's Wisdom and Wellness for Women Parsha podcast. This week we're going to hear both about Parshat Korach, read last week in Eretz Yisrael, this week in Chutz and Parshat Chukat to be read in Eretz Yisrael. When we open up Parshat Korach, more than Korach serving as a star character or even Moshe Rabbeinu, we hear about the Ketoret itself, the incense spices offered by Korach and the 250 followers at the beginning of the Parsha, and by Aaron HaKohen by the end of the story of Korach's rebellion. And the question is, what is the significance of the Ketoret? Why does it play such a major role in the Parsha? Well, in order to understand this, we have to go back to where Ketoret is first mentioned in the context of the Mishkan, namely in Parshat Titzaveh, right after Parsha Truma, which introduced the various kelim, the utensils that remind us of the revelation of Hashem by Harsinai, right after we heard about the Dibur of Hashem, the ongoing speech of God, like we had at Harsinai, this time manifest through the Aron and the Kaporet, after we hear about the menorah, the fire of Hashem that continues, the Lechem HaPanim placed upon the Shulchan that reminds us of the Panim El Panim relationship with Hashem, the Mizbeach HaOla, upon which we're going to constantly offer our animal sacrifices, reminiscent of the altar on the foot of Har Sinai, we're then told, but that's not the goal, just to bring Hashem to Har Sinai, rather, Vasuli Mikdash, Vishachanti Betocham. We want to know that Hashem is in our midst on a constant basis, and therefore we also have a Ner Tamid, a Korban Tamid. Every day we're going to light the menorah, every day we're going to offer sacrifices. The Kohanim, the maintenance crew, who will be in the Mishkan Tamid. Only after we hear about this goal accomplished of Vishachanti Betocham, the Torah then introduces another kli, another utensil, the Mizbeach HaKetoret, upon which in the morning we're going to offer every day incense spices. And the question is, why mention it at the end? So most of the Parshanim, such as Ibn Ezra, explain to teach us that this is the most important, the last is the best. This is parallel to the Aron. There is nothing more kadosh than the Mizbech HaKetorah because this is proof, this is testimony that Hashem is constantly in our midst. It provides the Reach, literally the Ruach, the uh, spiritual founding and phenomenon of uh, Hashem's presence. And that being the case, we understand Sforno, who tells us as well that this isn't a Kali like the others. It's not to bring Hashem or even to keep Hashem. It is purely for the sake of kavod, to honor HaKadosh Baruch Hu. This is the cherry on top. This is to show that, yes, Hashem is really here. And we provide for the reach of the Ketoret offered upon the Mizbeach HaKetoret. Or as the Tzror Hamor explains beautifully as well, that the Ketoret is in fact the secret behind Osher and Simcha, Lefishahu Mechaper, Umashir Umesameach, that it doesn't just can serve as Kavot Hashem, but actually makes us healthy and wealthy and happy. 
and mechaper, and it also atones for us. And he explains that once we have Hashem in our midst, we also have to remember that we have to protect ourselves, like we did by by Chet Egel. Once we sin, it's also scary to live with Hakadosh Baruch Hu every single day. And therefore, the Mizbech Haktorah also reminds us that there has to be a little bit of a separation that there has to be a little cloud of smoke, that there has to be some type of buffer in order to remind us that, yes, we have the schut, we have the merit to live with God, but that comes with responsibilities. And it also comes with submission, recognizing what this relationship is all about. And maybe if we then turn to the story of Nadav and Avihu in Sefer Vayikra, wherein we hear about how they brought the Ketoret as soon as Hashem appears in the form of fire, Am Yisrael is ecstatic. They realize that Hashem is back in our midst as he was by Har Sinai. And Nadav and Avihu say, excellent. So we're going to, in a symbiotic manner, also bring fire to Hashem. But by bringing the Ketoret, whether it was because Hashem didn't want a separation at that time or whether it was because Hashem says, I determine how you worship me. You don't determine how to worship me. The Torah reminds us that there's danger, that we have to be careful, that we have to submit to the will of God, that we don't determine how to worship Hashem, but Hashem determines how we worship him. And we want Hashem in our midst, but we have to understand that that really comes with submission. It comes with recognizing our vulnerability. It comes with all the kavod and literally the health and the happiness of living with Hashem constantly but also with responsibility. And maybe that's why the Gemara Mesechat Shabbat, Peitet, tells us how when Moshe Rabbeinu went up to Har Sinai, how each one of the angels became an admirer of his and passed on some type of matana. Even the Malach HaMavet, even the angel of death gave him something. And he gave him the secret of the Ketoret. And notice this. What is the secret? The secret that we learn in this week's parsha: how the ketoret can keep you alive. But this is ironic because it's the angel of death who gives it, teaching us that the ketoret can in fact be dangerous. It can be the samhamavit, literally the drug of death, or it can be a drug of life. It's going to be a sign that Hashem is constantly with, within us, keeping us alive and healthy. But it could also be dangerous if we abuse that privilege. It can be dangerous if we don't understand it. And now we appreciate why Moshe Rabbeinu told Korach. When Korach turns to Moshe and says, Why are you both the political leader, the religious leader? And Moshe Rabbeinu explains, you know, that it's not from us. This isn't us usurping any position of power, but rather this is from Hashem. And Moshe then says, okay, let's see who Hashem is is actually going to choose. Come tomorrow, you and the 250 men, come and try offering ketoret. You want to get close to Hashem? As Korach said, the entire nation is holy. So why are you going to be elevated above everyone else? And Moshe Rabbeinu wants to say, but this is from God. So you offer the Ketoret and let's see whether or not you recognize Hashem in your midst. Let's see whether Hashem is going to allow you to get close to him. Let's see if Hashem appoints you. 
and he's hoping that they'll all be deterred from remembering the tragic deaths of Nadav and Aviu. And yet, all 250 appear the very next morning. They're all contesting. On one hand, this seems so beautiful. They all want to get so close to God. They want to recognize God in their midst, but they're forgetting that the Ketoret is also kapara, that the Ketoret reminds us that we have to be careful and we can't overstep boundaries, which they have wherein they feel that they can determine who should lead and who should get close to God and how they should get close to God. And very often we think about Korach's democratic argument. Shouldn't we all be able to worship God the way that we want to? Shouldn't we all be able to fulfill whatever mitzvah we want to, whenever we want to, how we want to? And the Ketorah reminds us, no, because we worship God the way that God commands us to worship him. And albeit, it does reminds us that Hashem is in our midst. The ruach, the reach, the kavod is there. But at the same time, so does our respect, our submission before Hashem. And therefore Hashem tells Moshe and Aaron, you have to separate from these 250 men. And they are overstepping their boundaries, which is why right after they're killed, Hashem then says, take these griddles and hammer them onto the Mizbeach HaNechoshet. As a reminder, a constant reminder for Am Yisrael when they see these hammered griddles that cause the death of these 250 men, they'll remember, stop. Again, don't go beyond the Mizbeach HaNechoshet. Bring your sacrifices here, but realize that you're not supposed to pass that border. Don't be like Uziyahu, who so passionately wanted to get close to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that he overstepped the boundaries even of a king as he wanted to bring Ketoret like a Kohen and is then going to be punished with tzara'at. Hashem teaches us, and Moshe Rabbeinu reinforces it in this week's parsha that the Korah, that through Korach, that the Ketoret can keep us alive, but it can also kill us if we don't understand what it represents. And therefore, right after hammering these griddles on, the people, in fact, complain to Moshe and Aaron, you see, you're killing us. You're killing us with the Ketoret. I can imagine that they don't want to go anywhere near the Mikdash. And Hashem says once again, employing the same terminology as we find at the beginning of the parsha. Hashem says, I'm going to kill them instantaneously. And we know what this means. Hashem is going to manifest himself in the form of fire. And anyone who sees this without the Ketoret is going to be killed. And Moshe Rabbeinu realizes, okay, time to save the people now, time to create a buffer, time for them to realize that Hashem is literally in their midst, is coming to the Machane, is coming to the encampment of Am Yisrael. And instead of him doing this himself, he turns to Aaron and he says, you take the Ketorah, because even Moshe Rabbeinu understands that that's not his role. That would be overstepping his line, his function, his mission. He turns to Aaron, he says, you're the one commanded to take the Ketorah. You take the Ketorah now. And go run throughout Am Yisrael, basically forming this buffer. Make sure that there's a mechitzah so that they won't be exposed to uh, this revelation of God. And albeit, it takes just a few seconds as we hear karega literally at the end of the parsha, and 14,700 people are killed beyond the 250 men who were killed by in the Korach rebellion, beyond Datan and Aviram and their families. And we hear that Aaron literally ran el tocha kahal v'yineha chil ha'negef ba'am v'yitena taktoret v'yichaper al ha'am. But the ketoret, as we said, could also save them. By forming this barrier, he protects them from this presence of the Shekhinah. And the ketoret then truly teaches us 
a balance, a balance between, on one hand, recognizing Hashem in our midst, recognizing that Hashem is responsible for maintaining our health, for living with HaKadosh Baruch Hu day in and day out, and at the same time to realize how vulnerable we are. And all it takes is just a little virus. All it takes is a pandemic. All it takes is Hashem saying, sometimes you don't realize that I'm in your midst. And Hashem sends us various reminders, but tells us that I also gave you the antidote. I already gave you the vaccine. I gave you the ketoret, which also reminds us that you can protect yourselves and you have a means of protecting yourselves. And that is by following the mitzvot of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And it means following laws and regulations and understanding how everything inherent in this world created by Hashem can be used well or chas v'shalom abused. And perhaps a great example of this is uh, really a little bit about vitamins and about how on one hand we're supposed to maintain, maintain ourselves and our health and we could really talk about the ketoret as any form of drugs, drugs that could be used for positive, drugs that could be used for negative. But I think when we think about vitamins, it's also very similar. Again, to know how much, right? How much are we supposed to maintain our health and how much, again, should we take extra supplements? So uh, I want to read a little bit from a phenomenal book that was given to me by Michael Kaufman, the author of Am I My Body's Keeper? About Torah, Science, Diet, and Fitness for Life. And he talks a little bit about a word about vitamins, explaining, uh, firstly, the discovery of the germ theory in the late 1800s, the idea that minuscule organisms could cause infections and disease, and that they could actually be seen with the help of a microscope. This was one of the great scientific developments of the 19th century. However, the finding that the disease could be caused by the presence of something also hit the novel notion that disease could be caused also by the absence of something. And I believe that that's really the ketoret. It reminds us of the presence of Hashem, but then also reminds us that we have to be careful, that we have to protect ourselves. And in the case of our health, that also means vital nutrients. This concept was later established by the Dutch physician, Christian Eichmann, who discovered vitamins as essential nutrients whose absence from the diet can cause disease. And he was awarded the Nobel Prize for this in 1929. What Eichmann detected are a group of substances that are contained naturally in many foods and are indispensable in small quantities for good health and normal growth, development, functioning. Lacking those nutrients, there is death by deficiency. And deficiency of nutrients is serious and worldwide. At least 2 billion people who might get enough calories to survive do not get enough of the vitamins and minerals their bodies need, resulting in birth defects, anemia, blindness, impaired physical and mental growth, maternal and child death, brittle bones, increased susceptibility to disease and death. The revelation that substances found naturally in foods could have a tremendous effect upon health engendered the development of artificial nutrients, usually derived from plants and called phytochemicals. Phyto, from the Greek word for plant, dietary supplements in the form of pills, and the fortifying and enrichment of many foods with nutrients. Today, more than half of all Americans take dietary supplements. However, most of us are able to meet most of our nutritional needs by eating a variety of healthy foods. And we should all try to get our nutrients naturally from real food. As uh, again, Hippocrates averred, let food be thy medicine and medicine thy food. The uh, United States Food and Drug Administration confirms that vitamins and minerals supplied in abundant amounts in the foods we eat 
It cautions that except for persons with special medical needs, there is no scientific basis for recommending routine use of dietary supplements. So be wary of dietary supplements. David Kessler, the former commissioner of the United States Food and Drug Administration, declared before Congress there has never been a systematic evaluation of the safety of dietary supplements. When consumers see a health claim for a dietary supplement, they assume it will provide the benefit it touts. In fact, the marketplace is awash in in unsubstantiated claims. And therefore, one has to be very careful to reach the proper balance in, in a dietary supplements. An award-winning researcher, Catherine Price, writes in her very well-researched book, Vitamania, more than half of Americans use such supplements despite the fact that none of them are required to be screened for efficacy of safety before being sold and may even be illegally laced with prescription drugs. Most Americans are unaware that the dietary supplement industry is essentially unregulated. A consumer report survey found that most users were confused about diet supplements, thinking that they are regulated and safe. So be cautioned, there is no FDA approval for supplement or FDA approval process for supplements. There is also no guarantee that the contents of a supplement are what its label claims. As the New York Times summarized, many pills labeled as healing herbs are little more than powdered rice or weeds. Some have been found to have non-herbal substances and substances not listed on the label. So be very careful. It's not a surprise then that even the National Center for Complementary and Alternative Medicine, a group presumed to favor unconventional medicines, has not found benefits for most of the popular supplements. And therefore, when we tell ourselves sometimes, well, it can hurt, know that sometimes it can. There's little confirmation that the average person, person benefits from the daily use of a multivitamin, and therefore so much better to get this from natural sources. And if we assume, back to the Ketorah, that if something is good in small doses, bigger doses might be better, we know that this really isn't always true. One should follow, follow the laws, the regulations. That's what the Ketorah teaches us. The Malachamavit gives us also, on one hand, the danger of death, but the possibility of life. Be very, very wary. The Ketorah reminds us, and make sure that you take care of yourselves. Recognize that Hashem is in your presence. And at the same time, understand that we need kapara, we need protection. So rather than follow well-meaning advice of friends sometimes, ask professionals, ask your doctor whether your diet is deficient. Again, go for a blood test. See whether or not you should take specific vitamin supplements. Vitamin D, for example, extremely important, especially for religious women who generally do not receive so much source from, uh, from the sun. Vitamin D is linked to wide-ranging health benefits, including lower blood pressure and reduced heart disease risk. It's vital in preventing against several cancers and also contains calcium essential for bone strengthening, and it's vital for blood clotting. So uh, perhaps through taking a multivitamin, but be very careful before considering taking any supplements. And be especially wary of products promoting weight loss because they don't work for most people. A third of the users do not lose any weight, and 85% of the supplement takers who did lose weight confess that they also dieted and exercised. So I cannot emphasize enough, again, for weight loss or for healthful living, there is no substitute for a healthy diet stressing fruit and vegetables. 
And it's so sad that only 5% of American adults under age 50 are eating sufficient green vegetables. Less than 25% meet the guidelines for fruits. Instead, the number one contributors of calories in American diets, you can imagine, are cakes and cookies and pies and donuts, foods that consist nearly exclusively of easy-to-digest carbohydrates, which are quickly absorbed into the bloodstream and encourage our bodies to store these calories as fat and a Popular calorie-rich foods like soda, candy bars, french fries, potato chips, usually not enriched or fortified with nutrients. One-third of the vegetables eaten in the United States are either french fries or potato chips. And we have to be very careful. Again, every person needs 2,000 to 2,500 calories a day to live on, again, pending on and obviously your age and level of activity, but we consume so many more. Halavai that we should be careful Watch ourselves, watch our intake. The Torah reminds us that just like with vitamins, there is a balance, a balance that can help save us through, again, from any virus, a balance that really provides a heavenly cure, the heavenly cure that we are reminded of through the Torah, which comes hand in hand with listening to the guidelines of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Shabbat Shalom. This week's podcast is sponsored by Mira and Ben Rubin in gratitude to Hashem upon the birth of their son, Zahavi Lev Rubin. Zaltov. Hi, this is Gabrielle Hodes. I'm a Madrichat Kalot and an intimacy counsellor, and I'm excited to welcome you all to a new segment on this podcast, Mikvah Minute, in which I'll share my thoughts answering real-life questions about the Mikvah experience and related issues. I hope you enjoy them and that they give you food for thought. I welcome your feedback and questions at podcasts at theedencenter.com. I'll start with one of the commonly asked questions that I receive. Is mikvah meant to feel like a spa experience? So before answering, I'd like to address the wording of the question. Because when someone thinks or feels that they are meant to feel a certain feeling, then when they don't feel that way, they'll feel bad, disappointed, possibly even like a failure. What's wrong with me? I think this expectation sometimes comes from the way the mitzvah of mikvah was taught by their color teacher. If they were taught that the mikvah is like a spa day and mikvah night is like their wedding day, then many women will be disheartened when their mikvah experience falls short of that. Mikvah isn't meant to feel a particular way. There's no right or wrong regarding the way we experience it. What happens if it doesn't feel like a spa? What happens when you're not in the mood for a spa? It's about choosing the way you want to feel and the way you want to experience the mikvah and taking the steps to make that happen. What's important to you? What will make it positive? Some people want to connect to the mikvah on a purely halachic level, some on a physical level, some on a spiritual level. And some view it as a transition, a bridge connecting them to their husbands. Whatever it might be, that's okay. We need to choose a mikvah that meets our needs and prepare for the mikvah in a way that reflects our values. So if aesthetics are important to us, then we need to try and find a beautiful mikvah that we will enjoy visiting. If the balanit has a huge impact on you, then you need to find the mikvah with the balanit that you connect to. If you have high standards of hygiene, then you need to find a mikvah that matches your standards in all of those areas. 
Um, because if the mikvah doesn't meet your standards or values, not only will it not be a positive experience, but you'll be turned off. It's important for me to put it out there that I know that there are many women who don't have the luxury of shopping around for a mikvah. And sometimes there is only one in their area. So this definitely does pose a challenge, which we can address on another week. For those of us who do have a choice, I recommend shopping around, which sometimes might mean driving further afield than your local mikvah, um, until you find a mikvah that you connect with. For those of us who live in Israel, there is a website and Facebook pages which review mikvahot, um, and they are a great resource, and I'll attach those links afterwards. So if you would like your mikvah to be a spa day, go for it. You can set up your day around your mikvah preparation. The mikvah is an invitation and an opportunity to connect with your body. Everyone does this in their own way. So if you want to, you can pamper yourself with a manicure and a pedicure. You can take a long, relaxing bubble bath or a refreshing, mindful shower. You can check in with your body, which so often we ignore. You can stop and listen to what your body is telling you and see what it needs. But if you don't connect to the spa idea, that's also okay. You don't need to. And if you connect to it, but your busy life makes this a challenge, then we can think of ways to enable you to prepare in the way that you wish, even with time restrictions. But that we will do in another episode. Take care. This week's Parsha, Parshat Chukat, is paradigmatic in teaching us messages of wisdom and wellness and women and water as we open up the Parsha with the laws of Para Aduma, the process through which someone who came in contact with a dead body is going to be purified, how he's going to be restored not only to the Mikdash, but also to the Machanet, to the day-to-day activities of man. And how is this done? It begins with the burning of the red heifer. With the burning of the para, everything, the flesh, the hide, is reduced to ashes, reminiscent of the basic creation of man from afar. And when the flames subside, nothing remains of the original cow, rather just the blood that was directed towards the mikdash. This can certainly be seen as symbolic of life itself. As the cow is being burned, we also throw in it the cedar and the hyssop and wool dyed with the extract of a worm, large and small plants, large and small animals expressing the idea that what we do to the para is really the fate of all of life on earth. The life of all living things come to an end. Everything reverts to the dust and only the spiritual, only the blood that was directed towards the mikdash endures. Only that that we direct towards Avodah Hashem remains. But that's not the end of the para. We preserve the ashes to be used again and again. We mix the ashes in, in an earthen vessel with spring water. The vessel symbolic of our physical bodies, the spring water, is our pure, primordial higher self. Life is about these two parts coexisting and working together. We don't slaughter the animal part of ourselves because we disown it. We don't deny that it's part of ourselves. Rather, we uh, try to uplift it. We try to direct it towards Shem Shamayim for a purposeful existence. The ashes are meant to be part of a dynamic association with the water, with the spiritual. And in time, they're going to settle out, leaving behind the purely spiritual. And why do we do this? This is the Torah's prescription for Tumat Mit. When one comes in contact with death, it's easy for a person to come to believe, consciously or subconsciously, that he's nothing but fragile, ephemeral, earthly substance, reacting in horror, shock, depression, to the helplessness of death. He can come to doubt the reality of Bechirach of Shi, it's a free-willed moral striving. 
Para Aduma is the antidote to death-induced pessimism about the nature of man. The sprinkling of the Para Aduma mixture upon the Tame reminds him that the ephemeral physical part of himself is simply an ingredient in the magical elixir of life in which there are clear and pure waters of spirituality, and those are the most important elements. Only the unrefined physical dies, but the dominant parts, the water, that's what remains alive. The nishama, the spiritual pursuits that we pursue in this physical world, are what reminds us of a higher purpose. And perhaps that's why the parsha begins with all the laws dealing with people who come in contact with death as a transition from the second year of the Midbar, the years of those who were anticipating coming into the land of Israel, and what we see also in this week's parsha, fast forward to year 40, what happens in those 38 years? 38 years where Am Yisrael were wandering around the Midbar, wandering and wondering what their fate is all about. They're going to die off in the Midbar, not enter the promised land. And yet, we hear the laws of Paraduma. Yes, there's a lot of death and dying, But remember the waters, remember the sprinkling of waters, remember the hope, remember the ruach, remember the spiritual aspect. And this is so much part of our day-to-day existence. Generally, we're not sensitive to the separation of the physical and the spiritual. And sometimes when we perhaps neglect our health, neglect our wellness, we forget that the two are supposed to be synergized, how we're supposed to be sensitive to the two of them together. And this is particularly symbolized through the waters, the enduring waters that are sprinkled upon us as a reminder of the forces of life and how the two, the physical and the spiritual, are supposed to be fused together. And therefore, Rav Hirsch explains that right after hearing about the laws of Chukata Torah, the laws of Para Aduma, the importance of water symbolizing the spiritual aspects of life, right after that we hear about the death of Miriam and then how the people are lacking water and complain to Moshe Rabbeinu. He says this, in fact, tells us that they're not sensitive to what life is about. Perhaps after 40 years and in the Midbar, they are depressed with a the bleak notion that an entire generation has died out, Miriam included. And Miriam, Chazal teach us in the Tosefta and Sota, is the one responsible for the Be'er, is the one responsible for the Mayim. Be'er b'schut Miriam, Amud Anan b'schut Aaron, Man b'schut Moshe. Miriam was the one who provided for water. She's the one who provided for this life force, for the spiritual aspects of the physicality. And it makes so much sense. Not only do we see from the Parsha that as soon as Miriam dies, then there's a lack of water. But every time we see Miriam, she's by the waters, whether she's by the waters of Moshe Rabbeinu to assure his survival, to make sure that he's going to be nursed after Baparo takes him from the waters that ultimately should have been waters of death but end up being waters of life. And therefore, Chazal say she's also pu'a, literally infusing CPR, infusing life force into every child of Am Yisrael. Miriam, who we also find through her song by Yamsuf. Miriam, who also reminds us of the bitter waters of Mara, through which Hashem says we need the physical, but it's going to be accompanied by Sham Samlo Chok O Mishpat. Visham Nisahu. And Chazal say the chok, the chok of Para Aduma was already given there by Mara. We see the constant juxtaposition of Miriam by waters 
and by Torah, by not just any laws, but by Chukim, even the laws that we don't always understand, but the laws that help us appreciate the fusion between the physical and the spiritual aspects of our lives. And therefore, we also find by Miriam that she reminds us of the need for taking care of our physicality, whether it's Miriam who is sick with Tzara'at and helps us understand that in order to be purified, we need not just the process of purification of a mitzvah, but also tefillah, certainly turning to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. It makes sense then that when there isn't any Miriam to help us appreciate the fusion of the ruchani and the fizi, the spiritual and the physical, that the people then, as Rav Nachman Mibreslav say, says, they're missing then and the teachings of Miriam. They're missing the lessons of Miriam. And as a result, they're in Midbar Tzin. The Midbar turns cold because Miriam died. And now there isn't a Be'er. He says there isn't Be'ur. There is an explanation of the Torah. And what happens as a result? Then there's only machloket. Then there's going to be a division. People aren't going to see the fusion, the fusion between the waters and the earth, the fusion between the physical and the spiritual. And that's when Moshe and Aaron call out, almost as if they're crying out to Miriam, Miriam, we need you. We need the woman who can teach us about the fusion between the physical and the spiritual because our entire monthly cycle is in tune with this uh, symbiotic relationship, with uh, our physical and our spiritual, with a recognizing the giving of life, the loss of life, the rejuvenation and the waters of the mikvah, the rebirth, the recreation of life, the potential for more life. And at the same time, revisiting through our menses, this loss thereof, our lives are so intertwined, the lives of women with water, with wellness, with the physical and the spiritual combined. And therefore, Miriam's symbolic nutrition and provision for Am Yisrael is certainly the waters. Waters that Chazal say are like the words of Agadah, are words that help inspire us, are words that help us see the the achdut, literally the union between the the world of the physical and the world of the spiritual. And that's why Rav Hirsch explains that when Miriam dies, he's, he she is buried in Kadesh as a, a symbol of the entire nation dying. And this, though, he says, is a generation wherein the men may have died, but the women are going to go into the land of Israel. The women were able, through the teachings of Miriam, to remain enthused, even in the presence of so much death, they were able to see beyond that. They were able to see the waters. They were able to see life. They were able to see the spiritual existence that doesn't end with our ephemeral physical one. All the imahot and the saftot, Rafur says, are going to accompany this new generation into the land of Israel, bridging the past together with the future. This is the legacy of Miriam. They were able to take these messages, these everlasting messages, and this, in fact, is the legacy of Miriam. Or as the Maharal tells us in Netzach Yisrael, why is Miriam the one who provides for the Be'er? Both Aaron and Moshe provide 
Aaron and Anan, Moshe the man, different provisions from above. But Miriam provides for a be'er, the waters that come from below, because she represents taking that physical, taking that afar and the aether, and literally raising it to levels beyond. This is what's unique about Miriam. This is what represents really the power of the waters of women taking from below and striving for above, being able to transcend the physical, like the ishtokukut, the be'er, the be'er that comes from the bottom, comes from the earth, and strives to raise itself up. That's why Am Yisrael sing Ali Be'er and Nula to go up. The Be'er is the hitalut of the Tachtonim, the Mayim, the waters that come from underneath the land that are teaching us what not only Para Duma is all about, but what day-to-day existence is all about. It's about this balance, the balance between the physical and the spiritual that we see, unfortunately, too much when death comes and then we see the separation between the two. And Miriam and the waters of Miriam and the waters of Mikvah reminds us that in day-to-day living, life is supposed to help us appreciate the fusion between the physical and the spiritual. Only once we recognize this, then Am Yisrael can sing a song of their own. Az Yashir Yisrael et Hashira. And new be'er. Ali be'er and nula, rise up be'er. The women in the schutz of Miriam, she'al yada haya hishtokekut, hitalelut el ha'ala haya ha'be'er. The be'er reminds us of our striving for always, always trying to raise ourselves, always trying to fuse then the physical and the spiritual, realizing that they're one dependent on the other, taking care of our physical needs so that we're spiritually capable as well. Wishing you all a week, a month, especially in this time where mortality is facing each and every one of us every single day. May we appreciate the messages of Miriam, the messages of water, the messages of life. May we be able to surmount and ultimately fuse the two as we rise beyond the physical and ensure that the waters from below can meet the waters up above. Shabbat Shalom. Do you know a man who should be teaching Chatanim? Encourage him to join Eden's upcoming online Chatan teacher training course. For more details, write to info at theedencenter.com. Is there someone in your life that you want to honor? Someone who has helped you out or inspired you? Maybe it's a medical professional or a teacher or a yoetzet who went above and beyond to help you or a yard site or death that you want to mark, please consider making a donation to support this podcast in honor of a special person in your life. This episode of Wisdom and Wellness was recorded by Shani Tarragon, music courtesy of Shimona Gottlieb, and is a product of the Eden Center. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please give us a five-star rating, share this podcast on social media, and encourage others to subscribe. We welcome your feedback, sponsorships, and support. You can reach us at www.theedincenter.com.